Hi, welcome back to the Casters of Valhalla. This is your host, as always, Mike Schober. I'm going to pronounce my name as Necroblade, also known as Jacob, has dubbed myself. So my name is Orsel Farmy one And with me tonight, Cleon or uh, Cody. Matthias Maccabeus, Ken. Cool. And so you'll notice we have a bit of a smaller cast. We were supposed to have one more, but he didn't show. So we are going to be switching to a structure where we have a rotating group of co-hosts. So Ken and I will be on every week leading it. And then Cody, Matthew, Nathan, and William will be rotating in and out. This will help us stay a little more focused and hopefully cut down lengths a little bit. It got a little much with having six hosts last time. That's the first note. The second note is just for our main topic tonight, we're going to be hitting units in the A- range. We are actually going to be switching over to my own power rankings. Nothing against the official original rankings, but just my rankings. I've put a lot of work into trying to make them a more accurate representation of what units' power levels really are. And I think it not to make it a discussion about what should be ranked where, but it just it helps to be able to talk about these units in the places that makes the most sense to talk about them. Also, we are going to briefly hit a couple of the A-level units, um, according to my rankings, of course, that we forgot to hit last time. So the very first unit we have is the Mara Warriors. Now, the Mara Warriors are a just phenomenal, unique squad. The biggest thing is their stats are insane. If they didn't have a text box, they'd still probably be, be around a B-plus level figure. And then the fact that you give them water cloning and they become one of the most efficient squads in the game, as well as one of the most annoying to deal with. You guys have any more thoughts on Mar Warriors? I put them in the borderline broken category. They're like one of, if not, I don't know, they might be the best endgame figure in the game, at least for their points. Yeah, I, I like them as endgame figures. Well, I mean... I don't personally like them, but I can see how they're good at endgame <laughs> figures. The nice thing is they're also versatile with six move, even if you need to use them like as glyph grabbers early on. They can do that. I mean, hopefully you built your army a little bit differently and you're not using them as that. But even with the six move and the six range, they're pretty versatile. Like, even if you need a screen or something, too, they, they can do all those things with three defense. Granted, hopefully your strategy isn't that. But if it comes to that because of whatever's happened in the game, it's still a viable strategy. Yeah, and occasionally based on matchup or based on map or one of a variety of factors, occasionally, not usually, but occasionally it makes sense to even lead out with them just because they they cover that ground so fast with that six move. Um, the six range is great. That's a 12 threat range for 50 points with a four man squad uh, is pretty insane. The biggest thing, of course, then becomes opportunity cost of not developing up the rest of your army. So it's not usually the correct call, but it's it's an option that I've seen. I've seen people use it before and occasionally it's effective. They're also a unique squad that if generally what you want to do when you face unique squads is kill, get them down to like one figure or two figures, depending on the squad, then they're not nearly as good. But with Mara Warriors, if you just have one, you have that. You still have the opportunity of taking the game back in the end game with Water Clone. Yeah, they're really a squad where like you can't, you really need to kill all of them. Like you said with the Crab Agents, if you get them down to one, you're not near as nervous about them, but the Mara Warriors, that's a good point, Cody. Yeah. Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up. That's actually part of the reason why they can sometimes be effective early on is the fact that you don't care about losing a couple of them. And then also 
your opponent will oftentimes overextend to try to kill that last one and then you can oftentimes draw them into a trap with the rest of your army waiting there to kill you uh if you you know basically you can force your opponent to also make poor decisional moves and then punish them for it so i've, I've seen that happen a couple of times and it paid off but i think the big key when playing against mara warriors is if they lead out with Mara Warriors, you kind of have to accept the fact that you'll take some hits and you can't let it. It's kind of the same way you play against any range, but you can't just blindly rush out and try to deal with it. It kind of stinks, but that's just the way it is. Uh, try to make the most of the incremental board advantage you're going to get over those first few rounds and just set up for a, to have the stronger position going into that mid game. All right, let's move on to the next two units the other two units we forgot to talk about uh last time we briefly mentioned one but i really think we should cover both of them so the first unit is going to be sir gilbert we briefly mentioned how crazy jandar's dispatch is uh, i know william talked about how nice it is to be able to boost your knight's attack by one ken any thoughts on this one yeah i think like i think really gilbert is reason the knights are ranked so high the Knights would still be ranked high, I think, even without Gilbert. But the fact that Gilbert exists is the reason the Knights are in a higher tier than, say, with the Dwarves or whatever. Because four move, a lot of times, is not good enough. But, like, with Gilbert's Dispatch, like, just the crazy stuff you can do with water, with glyphs, with whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like, if you want to do a disengage, but you don't want to waste a Knight's turn, you can dispatch him out of, for a disengage, too, right? as opposed to having to do it with wasting, so to speak, your movement on that, because then you lose that attack, right? So the fact that he can do that, like, it's just so versatile, the dispatch. And the attack bonus is good, but generally, like, you know, back in the day when I used to play Gilbert, I never really had him up in the middle being dirty trying to fight as often because he was filtering knights up or he was dispatching them up. Granted, I would play, like, five knights in Gilbert or four knights in Gilbert, and I know some people do, like, three knights Gilbert in Nilheim or whatever, they're probably throwing Gilbert in the middle, but... Yeah, I mean, so, like, the attack bonus is nice, but really it's the Jandar's dispatch that makes Gilbert, in my opinion. Plus, like, six life and four defense is pretty legit. Yeah, it's super legit, and we'll be talking about the dwarves after, um, and one of the big things we'll be talking about is going to be how well they develop up, and Knights with Gilbert is just the best melee squad in the game, probably other than some niche scenario like the spiders but among the top level melee squads it develops up like no other it gets more figures up in a more efficient manner it's insane it also feels to me with gilbert when you face a bond in melee let's say sans green scales because their army is a little bit different but when you face a bond in melee it always feels like they take the hero turn and they go with the squad and there's kind of that dynamic and with gilbert you know, that's there too, but it always feels to me like when you're facing Knights and Gilbert, you're almost more facing Gilbert than you are the Knights. I, I don't know if that feels like that with you guys. Kind of feels like that with Grimnak too, though. But I think with Gilbert, it really, I don't know, he makes that army so good. Yeah, like I said, I think the Knights are still good without him, but they're not near as, like, you throw in Denric or Thorgrim or Elgrim or whatever, like, they're not, or Alistair, they're not near as high right i mean they're still high but gilbert's like you said cody like he just makes that army yeah he might be the single most essential piece to any of the top tier armies for melee yeah or just anything i think i think anything else could figure out some way to replace something and still remain in the top tier i think knights are 
the biggest exception where if you if for some reason Gilbert was unprinted, Knights would be screwed. Just they'd be I mean they'd be fine, but they wouldn't be able to compete with the likes of the eight level units. Besides blast glads. Those guys need each other. Or are you just talking about heroes? I wasn't even thinking oh, about them. okay. Yeah. You're, you're you're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Yeah. I was. I forgot they exist. <laughs> yeah, I was confused there for a minute. I, th- I thought you meant the matchup. Like knights would do well against Glad Blast. Oh no! Without no. Gilbert. <laughs> no, it's a it's an ugly matchup. I played that a hundred times against Spider, and I'm not going to say who won all those. <laughs> but yeah, Gilbert's really good. So so you average two symbols every time you roll, right? Theoretically. Yeah, so most of the time when you're playing, you you get one, two, or three symbols, maybe four. And then occasionally there will be a game where you're going to get, like, six symbols or something. And that's just crazy when that happens. Yep. All right, let's move on to Grimnak then. The other hero we forgot to mention, I don't even know that we briefly mentioned Grimnak. So Grimnak, my main army is Heavy Gruts with Grimnak, uh, usually with Nirak as well. And Grimnak is busted chomp is i think one of the best powers in the game it's his stats are pretty good they're not great four defense is really good but five life is a little low for 120 points especially when he's a huge figure that is seen from everywhere so you kind of have to be careful with him but if you can leverage chomp and if he lasts for most of the game that game is probably yours he makes the matchups against some of the other top armies really good. For example, like against Rats and Q9, he, the Heavy Grass matchup is insane. I mean, Disengage is already good there, but you can't just... Disengage isn't the only thing that's really good about that army going into Q9 Rats. The other big thing is Chomp, just clearing out a path, which is big because Grimnak doesn't have Disengage. And you're not really ever going to attack with him. I don't think you should ever put yourself in a position to attack with him, actually, for the most part. That's not universally true, but you should probably not be engaging figures you can't chomp with him. I'm a big believer in conservative Grimnak play, utilizing chomp and utilizing that stat buff, which is the other insane part about him. Turning two heavies next to him into four fours is ridiculous. You just kill what you want. And if you then throw on knee rack on top of this, those heavies are at five defense. Grimnak's at five defense. Your other heavies are at four defense. It's really good. Yeah, I feel like what like one of my rule of thumbs when playing a game is like I'm I often try to eliminate a lot of the squad of units first just so you can cut down on attacks per turn. But like with Grimnak, I feel like if Grimnak's on the field, he's priority one to kill. If I mean without putting yourself super out of position, right? Right, absolutely. And that's why I'm a big believer in trying to keep playing Grimnak super conservatively, just well, trying to keep and, him alive. And that's one reason, like, the heavy Gretz build back in the day with, like, Raylan, Nirak, Grimnak, and the heavies was so weird because it's like, who do you kill first? Do you kill Raylan first? Do you kill Nirak first? Or do you have to a seven defense Grimnak? You know, that's one of the reasons that that was big back in the day because, like, it made a lot of tough choices for your opponent on Hill. So a lot of times they just take, try and take out a grud or something because like, I could probably do that. So, right. Yeah. And that, that attacking into a seven defense Grimnak feels with five lives just feels bad. Yeah. He's, he's insane. Anything else on Grimnak or what about him with blades? You're a big blades <laughs> he, person. He makes, 
Yep. The reason I think blades are so good, here's a secret, has nothing to do with the blades themselves. It has everything to do with the fact that you get this cool figure called Grimnak. Um, and it turns out blades are really nice when you're running Grimnak because you super don't care about just throwing them in bad situations in order to protect Grimnak. Like tether, tethering is a huge strategy I employ when playing Grimnak, which is something I don't see a lot of people use. It's a more higher level concept, but basically what tethering is or this is what I call it. I've seen people do it without explicitly saying it is I take a grut and I run it forward to tie up a unit that I don't want advancing towards me. So especially against squatties, if there are two squatties next to each other, a little ways up, I'll take one grut and run it up next to them outside of auras, out, you know, not next to Grimnak. The only point there is to say, you can't go past me or you're taking disengages with, you know, figures you don't want to be doing that. And oftentimes I'm doing it in a way that just straight up, you can't get to me anymore by doing that. And with blade gruts, with six move and only costing 10 points a pop tethering is so effective with them he also makes them a relevant offensive unit by making them three attack is huge so it, it really helps them get some kills and i think you have to use grimnak a little more aggressively in the blades build because you can't lean so heavily on the blades to do damage but it's it's still very good and again the reason blades are good is very much on the back of grimnak Blades are the cheapest squad in the game, along with Nagrobes and Yari, I think. And rats. All of them are only 10 points, and rats. Yeah. Yeah, they're super cheap, so they're expendable. So that kind of hits all the A's. The only other A's in my rankings that we haven't hit so far then, we're going to hit alongside the bonding hero or the bonding squads that go with them. I think the best place to start with the A-minuses is... The three units that we actually discussed in the very first episode, which are the Dwarves, the Romans, and the Death Chasers. All three of these are, they're basically the bonding melee of the A-minus tier. We spent quite a bit of time on it before, but let's just run down the strengths real quick. And weaknesses, of course, of each of them. Can you play a ton of Dwarves? What's up with Dwarves? I think they're great. I think they should actually be a tier above, but... I feel like I play the game a little bit differently than you guys. <laughs> I mean, all three of their heroes are really solid. When Meagle or Michael, however you say it, is your worst hero, you're doing pretty good. I mean, Derek for 60 points is legit. Mogrim, you know, tough, is is really, really good, um, unless you run into a special attack. But the fact that you can become six move guys if you need to, eight move with the move glyph is just stupid, stupid good. Their threat range is just so versatile about, like, do I got to run up and grab a crab that's six spaces away, or can I just bring up my hero slowly? You know what I mean? The fact that they can do that so often, or and even in all honesty, like I've joked about just running like five squads of dwarves for the main event and not even have a, a bonding hero just for fun, because like that six move is six move with a three, three base stat line and then four, four against huge figures. I don't know, man. I find it hard to do much worse. Yeah. Or much better. Sorry. Much better. Long day, sorry. I was at court all day. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the concept I brought to General Wars two years back, where I brought it to the finals, losing to Nick, where I was running non-bonding dwarves with Nilfheim and Raylan, just because I figure three squads of dwarves, I don't care what I hit, so... I hit a bunch of Q9 10th Regiment builds, and they trade fine into 10th Regiment. It's not like 10th Regiment are a bad matchup for them because they still have six moves. They have three attack. So they do all right there. They obviously did well against Q9. So 
dwarves are really interesting because of that and that early game development if you don't have if you do have a hero the early game development is still really good because you don't have to bond every turn like i i said this in that first cast but i strongly believe this like if heavy gruts or knights had the ability not knights so much because gilbert kind of does this but if heavy gruts had the ability to say i don't bond this turn but instead i get plus two move it would be busted like it wouldn't it would just be insane though because you don't need to bond every turn especially in the early game when you just want to develop up and the ability to just jump up with four of them is insane well even like even sacred band or if the romans could do that yeah you know they don't have to rely on marcus exactly yeah i remember i said this last cast when you go in with dwarves it doesn't really feel like you're dependent on facing a large or huge army or figures it feels like you have a good army, and then if you face larger, huge figures, it's like a really sick bonus. Cody, you want to take Romans? Yeah, they're really good. They're cheap. They have great bonding figures. They have Me Berksa, who's ridiculously good for a bonding unit. They have Marcus. I love Nigaxa, personally. You can play Mogram with them as well. They, to me, are just really, really solid. They're also pretty versatile that you can splash like 10th Regiment or Airborne Elite as well. And they're only 50 points. I wouldn't put them as high as Dwarves for me. Like, I think Dwarves are slightly better for me, but I think Romans are really close. A lot of people say Romans are better. Personally, I think I think it's just the movement that I can't get past with, with Romans. But I think there's an argument that can be made for it. Yeah, I mean... They pot up well. They also work really well with Raylan for six defense with shield wall. And then me Berksa, their, their big selling point is me Berksa. I think um, the ability to bond with a ranged hero is pretty pretty great. And that's why I have me Berksa, of course, in the A tier. It's just paralyzing stare is nice, but it's more bonus than anything else. The plinking from range safely behind Romans and the ability for him to run up a little bit and then run back to safety with his eight move. Nagox is a good hero. I mean, even Valgard's pretty good. It's just the only reason you don't run Valgard is because you have 10 other great choices. Like, not actually 10, but you have, you know, Mittens is fine with them too. Venok Orlord. Like, (laughs) you have so many great options with Romans. As you mentioned, you can run 10th, you can run Airborne. Both of them have the soldier bonus, which is really cool. Airborne with Mar- next to Marcus is one of the scariest things you'll play against. So, And I think, like, for the Romans, their versatility is a little bit different. Like, I think with the Dwarves, the Dwarves are pretty aggressive. I mean, granted, you're slow rolling or whatever. But, like, with the Romans, you know, like, I would take an all-Roman army and be aggressive with it. But, like, they also, as you guys have mentioned... You know, even two squads of them with a shield wall protects whatever your valuable assets are in the back, whether it's 4th Mass or 10th Regiment or Airborne or whatever girly range units you guys are using. They're good with the pods that you guys like to run. They work well with that because of the versatility. And like you said, with all the different heroes, you could run Romans with Mittens and Aubrey and Archers. I mean, granted, I don't think that's any better than running them with the 10th Regiment and Marcus. But still, if you wanted to do something like that because of their versatility, you could. You know, because they have all the different options. And Valgar, like you said, is really, his stat line is great. But, like, when you have Nigaxa around, why are you going to run Valgar? as a general rule, right? I mean, every once in a while you can just because that seven life is great. You don't kill about, you don't care about disengaging and smacking into other people either. Life is so high. Yeah, their options are insane. They have so many options. They're so, and I think that's one of the coolest things about them is that you can play a bunch of games in a row with Romans and just vary the build each time. And it's going to play, it'll play pretty differently each time, which is really cool. 
And the fact they're so cheap is great. And like, yeah, granted, they only have two defensive they're by themselves, but sometimes like that's fine, right? Depending on what you're playing against, you don't need to group them together, especially if you're playing them more aggressively. If you're playing them against like McDirks that have been pumped up, you don't care about four defense versus two defense, right? Right. I mean, it's kind of the same thing at that point. So. Yep. Last up are Death Chasers for for this group, of course. Do either of you have strong opinions on the Death Chasers? My opinions are mostly from talking to Veggie about this. I think he is one of the best Death Chaser players <clears throat> out there, and he has a lot of experience with them. So. I think, Cody, you said you like these guys quite a bit, right? Yeah, I like the fact that they have four attack for a base, and I like that they just automatically develop first turn. Mm. They have Nibirxa. They have Nirak. They also have quite a bit of versatility in their army. You can just run Swag Riders, and that's pretty good. You know, you have the Pulverizer, which gives you not only a fourth attack, but also a fifth attack. You have the Warhawk, which is probably the least common of the heroes, but even him is pretty decent. I don't know. There's something about their four attack that I just love. And I think that's another reason why I love the McDurks a lot is just having a, an attack that's more than three just straight up as a base. Well, once you once you pump the McDurks, but once they get to that point, it's really cool. You can just threaten positions like crazy. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the Roman thing where you can build it, you know, a couple of different ways. I know Veggie is his, the way he plays it is he he'll run, you know, three or four squads, and then he'll throw in Raylan and Mebergsa and Nirak. So now the Death Chasers are five defense. And you have uh, Mebergsa sitting back, planking away, and if they try to get near this pod, you have four attack that can just jump out. He said he generally jumps out like one or two, you know, maybe in a turn outside of the aura just to get quality attacks on high priority targets and it goes back to that roman thing where they're not quite as cheap but they're still pretty efficient and then the other way you play them is you smack somebody's face in with you know five attacks of four in a turn with the pulverizer which is personally the way i like to play them just you know you get up there the battle rush is insane it's the best part about the unit in my opinion you get that great early development especially once you hit like four to five squads (laughs) yeah well they're they're only a three squad which obviously has limitations, but you get the battle rush. The development kind of evens out compared to a lot of other really good melee armies. But yeah, I love them. Yeah, I wouldn't run less than five of them, but it's been a while since I've, I've played them. Pretty sure I won back in the day with them, but I can't, I don't recall for sure. But I think the nice thing about the battle rush too is like you're probably going to get the glyphs first as a general rule, which is nice, right? Yeah. Cool. That'll wrap up that. Let's move on to the next unit. I think that makes sense to hit at this point. And that'll be the Greenscale Warriors. And at this point, we'll also talk about Nilfheim. Let's leave Zelrig and Braxis for a second here. Nilfheim, of course, have an A tier, whatever. Greenscale's Nilfheim is insane. I played a lot of it, and it impresses me more and more every time I play it. Nilfheim just has that solo potential I know we've talked about before. Ice Shard Breath is insane. You shouldn't always be trying to get three attacks with him per turn, though. You should be making... You should be more prioritizing him staying alive. I'm a big fan of conservative play with him as well. And then when you green scales Nilfheim and Raylan together, your green scales are now six defense, and Nilfheim six defense... And they have to try to kill Raylan, but she's sitting behind this massive wall of health and defense. And 
you're getting upwards of six attacks per turn. You're averaging like four to five attacks per turn. Like if you're averaging five attacks per turn and three of them are range attacks of four, you're doing really well. The downside, of course, is just that green scales themselves are a little expensive per figure, but I think Nilfheim's effectiveness more than makes up for it. Yeah, I mean, they also work with every dragon and just kind of turn into this kind of similar to heavies in that they get plus one, plus one. And yeah, I, there's, I don't know. They're really good. <laughs> I think the biggest difference is so with like the dwarves, really most of the other melee bonding squads, sands a few, these guys cost the most in order to bond. Like the heroes cost the most, right? Mm-hmm. So like Braxis is 210, Charles is 210. I think the cheapest is what's his bucket? Awkward. The Black Dragon, 140, right? Because I mean, he's played so often. So, like, if you look at the other side, like the dwarves and stuff, like the most expensive here is 120 as a general rule, right? I mean, it's a werewolf lord that nobody cares about. So, I think, like, with the dragons, if your hero dies, you're done. With, like, dwarves, your hero dies, you're not even close to being done. And I think, like, that's a big difference. And so, I feel like the, the green scales have to be played pretty differently. You know, you mentioned, I think, earlier, Michael, how you play... The blades kind of as a screen for Grimnak and even the heavies a little bit, but even, but the heavies can get the job done as a general rule too. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the green scales have to be a a big screen for all those dragons because like if those dragons die, you're done. But like if Grimnak dies, you still have heavies. Sure, it sucks, but your heavies, I mean, they're not chumps, right? They can still hang in there, and like dwarves can still hang in there, and knights and in Romans and whatnot. But like I just feel like that's so many points invested in in one hero that like. I don't know. Like, and that's kind of one of the things, one of the reasons I don't like the green scales as much because I feel like my rule of thumb is like I try not to like if I'm going to b- pick a hero that I bond with my rule of thumb is like I don't want it to be more than 120. And that's just kind of one of my you know kind of my I don't know, I say rules but just kind of something I think about when I'm building my armies for competitively speaking. I mean for fun whatever. Right. Well, and I think the only top-tier greenscale army is the greenscale Nilfheim. I think the other dragons are better off. Either they're not top-tier, or in the case of, like, Braxis and Zelrig, I don't think I don't think you necessarily should take greenscales with them. I completely agree with what you're saying. I just think that even though they have to do that role, and that you have to play defensively with them, you have to play conservatively with Nilfheim, I just think it's so good at doing that. It's a little bit of a one-trick pony, sure, but I think it's amazing at being that one trick pony or one trick dragon yeah i mean i just hate to pigeonhole them saying that only it works with nilfheim because i think like with braxis you got you got a similar thing because acid breath is also range four i guess versus range five but i think that's uh, okay that's fair oh, oh like okay so with like memory memory is the green scales or arrow guts better and like i would you know arrow guts interesting okay i would 100%. disagree but I think okay. a lot of the green scale armies are really underexplored. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, I think, I don't know, they're another unit that's a little bit hard to pin down exactly what their army is, you know? I mean, you could run, like, two squads of them and a dragon and then spend the rest of your points basically mitigating. And then you could also run a lot of them with Raylan and a dragon they're a little bit of a weird one to rate exactly, or, or to, um, I guess, categorize exactly where they fall. But all in all, they're really solid. But if you are running a dragon in two squads of green scales, like, that's two-thirds of your army. 
mm-hmm. point wise is a general rule, right? If not more. Yeah. So I feel like. It, Sure, you can try and mitigate some stuff, but your options are pretty limited because of points. And that's exactly why I don't like them with, for example, like with Braxes. I've ran them with Braxes before, um, not a tournament, but it's my problem is that Braxes still just gets shredded by range. And if you bring Braxes, Greenscales, and Raylan, it's just Braxes should really just be Nilfheim. And even if you want to be Braxes, like then that four range is really just super limiting when you have Raylan. It's way easier to play around. Like the fifth range is huge. I feel like it's a huge breakpoint in range. I think the four to five and the six to seven are the two biggest ones. Yeah, that's my biggest thing. I've also like in tournament I've played Zelrig green skills before, and it just makes Zelrig kind of this like you play him pretty conservatively. Like you get a bomb out early on, but then you have to kind of just hold him back, and you're just kind of using his attack to like threaten, and you deal, you know, you do whatever that attack's called, burning fires or majestic flame or whatever it's called, you know, one figure at a time. If there's a group of two, great, you take it. But it's just very conservative and it's it's good, but you're better off having those points going somewhere else. I don't feel like green skills are really justified there. And with like aerogruts, like aerogruts, you develop up a couple swags real quick and then because they get up super fast and then you have memoring just start picking them apart, and by the time they get towards you, you can just destroy them with the aerograds. Like, it's disgusting. And I just don't feel like you get that with the green scales. Not saying that memoring green scales is bad, but I've played more of aerograds memoring. I've played a little bit of green scales memoring, but I think aerograds memoring is better-ish. I don't know. I'm not 100% sold, I guess, on it, even though I said 100% earlier, so... <laughs> well, I know a guy that won a team tournament with uh, green scales and memoring, so I was just wondering... Yeah, what was that guy's name? That was my boss. I I know it was. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk, uh, I don't know, and I guess also real quick, people have explored a little bit into the other ones. I Like the Charos one is just, they're all pretty good, I guess. I, I do, actually I do agree with you, Cody, that they are a bit underexplored. Um, people have tried the Molten Claw, the Othkirk. I've tested the Othkirk before, actually. I tried to make it work for reverse the whip. It was just way too strong with Raylan because, you know, again, six defense, green skills, five defense, off Kirk, it's insane. Um, in reverse the whip meta specifically, uh, not to get into that now. But, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of options there. I think they're a solid unit, but the biggest thing, as Ken said, is that the, the cost of the green skills themselves is high. It's twice the cost of, like, Blade Gruts, for example, and the cost of the dragon is high. Then there are two other dragons in the A-minus range. So, first... Let's do Zelric. He's the easier one to do. Basically, he just if somebody has a starting zone full of commons and it's a map that he can hit you before you get to act, he can just kind of dumpster you, and there's not a whole lot you can do. And even if it's not that circumstance, he still might just destroy you because his special is pretty insane. It's seven range. The minus two defense to everybody just really stinks. And even if you prepare your starting zone for the best way to counteract it, it still might just destroy you. I remember playing at Gen Con against somebody who no longer goes, but was running Zelrig, and I had heavy gruts, I think like four heavies, Grimnak, Nirak, Mara Warriors. I set up my start zone, so all he could hit on my first turn was two heavy. It was on Takala Sunrise. All he could hit was two heavies and Grimnak. Like, cool. Uh, yeah, both heavies die. Grimnak takes like eats a wound or something. Super inconsequential. Next turn, he doesn't do what I expect, which is like try to pick off. Gr- Instead, nope, just destroys the Mara Warriors and like some heavies, and then it just keeps going. And basically, he 
decimates my whole army pretty much with Zelrig, who's just running away and shooting at seven range as my heavy grunts try to slog across the map against him. And he just, I've seen it happen so many times too, and it's just really, he's really disgusting for 185 points. It's a little matchup dependent, though, is the biggest flaw with him. And also, you roll only once per turn with his attack, so if you whiff, it feels bad if you whiff. It feels bad for your opponent if you roll three skulls, so he's variance the unit. I don't like him, but he's good. Yeah, he, and we're going to get to these units, but him and Cyprian and the Airborne Elite, I think all are like, there are definitely times where they should be like an A unit. Even higher sometimes. Yeah, maybe even higher sometimes. But it's just the fact that they're bad matchups that... And with the Airborne Elite, I've seen some games where they never drop. So it's it's hard for me to put those units higher than an A-. minus. But they have like pretty insane peaks. With Zellrig, you can kind of go in and do as much damage as possible... And then you could also play him conservatively, and it works pretty well. Depends on the map, though. But yeah, he's a really scary unit. Cool. I guess you mentioned them, so before we hit Braxis, let's hit the other two high-variance things. So let's hit Airborne Elite. Who wants to hit Airborne Elite? Cody, you want to hit them? They are really, really, really good <laughs> when they when they drop. You can position, you can play really offensively with them, or you could play also defensive and conservative with them. They have eight range and three attack. They have grenades, so they can decimate a start zone if you drop really early and get initiative. And basically their only downside is that they have two defense. So they're very... Like you said, high variance. I could see people rating them as high as as high as an A, but I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think a lot of people play them and play them as a C unit, uh, which is yeah. a bold claim. But I think so. My biggest take on Airborne Elite and the one I'll I'll stand by till the day I die is that grenade is a trap. You should almost never grenade. The reason you shouldn't grenade is because it's five range. You you didn't bring the Airborne Elite to be at five range of people. You brought them to be at eight range. So when you drop them first turn, let's say let's say you hit the drop right going into the first round. Cool. Where do you drop them? You drop them 12 spaces away. You drop them exactly to where that they can move four spaces and shoot at eight range. You max out that range and you just shoot from across the map the entire game. It is obnoxious. They'll be attacking down the whole time with four attack. If you don't have range or phantom knights, you're kind of screwed. Melee gets destroyed sometimes by it because if they're just rolling hot, you're done. Grenades, though, mean that you are very close to their start zone. If you lose that initiative... They are probably screwed. Remember, they're only four move, which is a huge like problem for them. That they're good at staying far away, but they're not good at get like getting distance. Almost every other unit in the game will gain distance on them. Like if, if it was a straight up race, they would lose basically. And occasional grenades work. I had a game at Gen Con once where grenades took out five warriors of Astra and a PK. Each grenade only hitting max three figures, even with spacing it out. It's just they two skulls, two skulls, two skulls. It shouldn't happen. And also, just because it does happen doesn't mean it's correct. And that's something we'll get into down the road is the different, like, is what I call outcome-based thinking. But please, 
stop grenading or actually keep grenading. <laughs> what if you're going up against mesodemons? Mesodemons? Sure, mesodemons, maybe like cutters or venox, but those are pretty niche. I'm talking yeah. about just like stereotypical things you're going to see at a tournament. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule, but I think the rule should be don't grenade rather than the rule being grenade. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I would say, well, you can only do grenade once anyways. Typically, their eight range is what you want to abuse. It also depends on the map, though. You know, like if you can, if you can get on a map where you can just like really make them broken against certain armies, I guess depending on where you want to drop. But yeah, you can play them really conservatively too. It depends on how how early you drop and how initiative happens. Right, which is their biggest weakness. That and two mm-hmm. defense. Cool. Cyprian and then in tandem Sonya. So Cyprian can want to cover him. Sometimes he's great and sometimes he sucks. I mean, like really, there's very rarely is there a middle. I think he's a character that can be played very very poorly or very very well as well. He's kind of like, once you put an order marker on him, you really can't stop unless you're going to retreat him somewhere safe, right? But you can't, like, move him up and then, like, start activating your other guys because then everybody's just going to concentrate fire on him and kill him because that's how you kill him. I actually had a game at Treetown this year where I had Death Knights against Cyprian, and I thought I was screwed. He did a good job of picking off my heroes because I had some Doom and Teft guards, so it, so it was just my two Death Knights. And, like, two attacks of two per turn, even though he's only got two defenses, is just not going to work out. But for whatever reason, the dice gods were in my favor, and I actually was able to pull that out. But, yeah, he just takes concentrated attacks to kill. As a general rule, I mean, granted, there's always that weird initiative switch where you're Niflheim. You know, I shards him two turns in a row, and he dies. But, yeah, you... He's just a guy that once you start activating, you really got to keep activating him unless you're going to retreat him somewhere safe. And then, like, against Q9 and Rats, he's just stupid. Like, he's dumb. Like, you're like, that's 150, 195 points with Sonya that I wasted. I don't use him very often when I play against him. Usually if I have melee bonding, I'm not too concerned about it because usually four or five attacks per turn is going to kill anything. Right. But I've seen him. I've seen him do stupid stuff, man. Outside of Soulborgs, he's definitely an A. But because he's so weak to Solborgs, it's hard to rate him higher than an A minus. But he's still high variance too, I think, even because of the D twenty, you know. Because one attack of three is not very good. I mean, sure, it's gonna be four often because you've got still flying an eight move, which is ridiculous. But like, still, even one attack of four, yeah. and even if you're healing every time you do that one attack of four, concentrated fire is gonna kill him. So right. you get a couple, you know, you roll an eight or nine like three or four times in a row and you're, you're fighting 4th Mass or 10th Regiment, or you're playing somebody good that actually brings melee, as a general rule, he's just not going to survive very long. But, I mean, or do you use him as an endgame figure when everything's so spread out, but then why are you spending 195 points on an endgame figure is another question, right? Right. Uh, I'm making some assumptions that you're running Sonya with him, but... Either so way, is 150 it, is still kind of expensive for just a standalone figure. So, so, so here's... Do you run him without Sonya? Like, is it super, like... Is it depending on, like, your build or what else you have with it? Or what, what do you guys think? Like, is he worth 150 points, or is he actually... Do you need the 195 combo? I, I think, think he's worth Sonya, 150. I think Sonya makes him better in his matchups that he's going to do well in, and then worse in the matchups that he's going to do bad in. So 
it's I don't know it's hard to say I find it really hard to build armies with Cyprian because I'm too worried that I'm gonna go in and face Solborgs it just feel like like if you face Q9 you just feel like you know I, I mean it just depends also what they have right but if you if it's Q9 you're like man I got 150 points of dead weight right basically yeah I mean, if they've got Crab or something, I guess he's got some options. But, like, even that, you, you're only killing 100 points to your 150. Right. Or 195 if you've got Sonya. Yeah, Sonya for me just, it literally just depends. Do I have the room? Do I not? Like, I'm not going to sacrifice an important piece to whatever else I'm bringing in order to fit Sonya in. But if I have the 50 points, you know, or 45 technically to spare, then sure, I'll take her. I will say, like, the Cypher and Sonya, Sonya, however you say it, like, the theme that the designers put in, in those two guys is super cool. Like, I really like how they boost each other, and then when he dies, she takes... Like, I think that's... They did that super well. Like, I think that was... And even the chilling touch is cool, and then the life drain. Like, I feel like the the figures... The design of those two figures is really neat on lots of different levels. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for Cyprian is just concentrated fire just destroys him. I don't know. I don't love him as much as a lot of people do, but then occasionally he rolls that 20 on Nilfheim and just ends somebody's day. So he's yeah. good, but he's high variance. So you'd like this story, Ken. Way back in, God, when was it? Like 2000, maybe like 2008 or 2009, maybe. That was before Michael was born. I went to this tournament and I... <laughs> I played, uh, this was a hometown tournament called Beantown Beatdown, and I ran Gilbert, Five Squads of Knights, and Zetacron, and I faced this dude who basically played super high variance army, so it was Cyprian, Airborne Elite, Braxis, and I think had Sonya as well, and yeah, the knights, knights prevailed. Of course they did. Was there a question? <laughs> That's a scary army to face. The Knights is absolutely a scary army to face. Yeah, Airborne Elite, Braxis, Cyprian. That is scary. No, nah, nah, because like here's the deal with the Knights and Gilbert. Well, even the Knights and any bonding hero, really. Cyprian's got to come to you and Braxis has got to come within four spaces of you. I'd be, the Airborne could be an issue. I could see that, but like... If you're positioned correctly, like, and you're slow rolling, she's going to come in and gas a couple people, but you're going to have everybody up on her face, you know, next order marker. And same with Cypher, and he can bounce around a little bit. But if you're concentrated in groups, you should be able to maul him pretty easily. You know what I'm saying? Sure, he might have height, but still, if you're attacking him five times. Yeah. Cool. Let's move on to, I guess, Braxis is probably the logical next step. We've already talked about Zellrig and Nilfheim. We've talked about some D20 units already. And now, I know, I don't like Braxis, but luckily we have somebody on who does like Braxis. Cody, what's up with Braxis? <laughs> Braxis, I love. She might be my favorite figure. She's just, she's nasty. She bypasses defense and just, she's pretty high variance, but... Most people view her as A minus. I view her as an A just because she has eight life and she kind of, to me, unless Q9's on the table, she can kind of just kind of do it all. And I think I've had just so many games where she's killed so many points worth of figures that it, it gets pretty crazy. I like to go pretty, I don't know, pretty conservative with her at times. I don't really like to jump in with her as much as I used to. 
but man, I just love the eight life. <laughs> I don't really run her with green scout warriors too often. I usually just do rats. She's pretty much, I think she's really good unless, unless you're facing Q9, I think. That's my opinion about her. Chain fighters destroy Braxis. Chain fighters? <laughs> yeah, well, it's one in 2,000 matchups that you're going to face someone who brings all chain fighters. I know a guy. Not if you go to Gen Con, <laughs> then it becomes like one in 40. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy that likes chain fighters. I think the biggest thing with Braxis, I actually, I don't know, I don't really classify her as that high variance. I think she's actually pretty consistent um, because she gets the three rolls per turn usually, and eight plus is pretty easy to hit. My two big problems with Braxis have always been the four range and the three defense. I find it so tough against range in general to keep her alive. I think rats help, but at the same time, a bad initiative switch could end your day. Especially like if you're playing against heavy rats, I'm not sure what your out is if they, you know, go last. If they get an initiative switch against you, I just feel like that's probably game. They'll disengage and chomp through the rats and then get to go first and surround her and then she's done. But also, like, I play heavies all the time, so it's hard for me to, you know... I haven't really played any other figures into Braxis. I've actually played the heavies versus Braxis matchup, I think maybe five or six times at Gen Con over the years. Like, I've won all of them, but again, that's just because heavies are kind of dumb against that stuff. I see where you're coming from, though. Against a lot of other stuff, she's pretty good. Or, not pretty good. She's good. She's she's very good. And sometimes she just dumpsters an army, and there's not much they could have done, so that's always good. Well, she just, like, bypasses defense, which is pretty crazy. I don't know, it just kind of sets your opponent in, like, panic mode, and I really love that. <laughs> She's also nasty with the heel glyph, too. Like, I, I remember I faced a game with... So I was playing, I think, what was this, 2015 Gen Con? And it was day two, and it was reverse the whip. So I brought Braxis and Rats and Hydra and Mara Warriors. And then I was up against uh, Daroche, and he had Trons with Raylan. And I think he had Heirloom, I think, as well. And so it was on the reverse round. So I had his Trons and he had Braxis. And I just, like, I literally couldn't do anything. I didn't know what to do in that matchup. Trons, Raylan versus Braxis, Rats is really difficult, in my opinion, for the Trons. Yeah, that seems like a really bad matchup for Trons. Yeah, well, I don't know. Something about Braxis to me is, is just pretty nuts. But I'm I'm fine if people yeah. put her at A minus. I I personally think she's an A. A minus is still very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Most units I, I don't, can I don't be think at the A minus level. Yeah, I still think Nilfheim's better than her as far as a dragon goes, as far as the like rankings of the dragons. But I think she's really 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 good. Let's move on to a couple heroes we can hit pretty quickly. Just a couple heroes for the knights. So the two. In the A-minus section that we haven't talked about would be Alistair and Eldgrim. Alistair overextend is pretty good. Five attack is good. Six life is great. Three defense is fine. Six attacks on a turn with knights is very, very good. And then Eldgrim overextend 
to grab a glyph is real nice, especially if there's a heal glyph and they have a Braxis or whatever. You first turn, run them up, overextend, and burn that glyph, and that prevents the stupid end scenario of, like, you know, Braxis with two life gets the glyph, heals back up, and you're screwed. Ken, any other thoughts on those two? No, and I think, like, the, the you say with the Knights, I think the biggest reason that maybe, like, you don't see them as often is because Sir Gilbert exists, right? Elgrim, obviously, for 30 points is great. And then um, Alistair really is a heavy hitter. Like, sometimes you need a heavy hitter. Like, you know, years ago, there was that uh, when Firestorm came out and everybody's worried about melee versus Firestorm. Like, I think, like, somebody like Alistair, sometimes you need that heavy hitter to make sure you're able to kill the fire elementals. Generally, like, with Gilbert around, he just sees less play, even though he's probably my favorite unit in the game. Our hero in the game's Alistair. We hit dwarves. Anything you want to specifically hit? I, I think you mentioned it in passing. Anything you specifically want to hit on Derek or Mogram, though? I think Derek for 60 points is ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. the hide in the shadow, plus uh, he can get six attack. It happens more often than you really think, right? It is a little weird because he activates first, so you have to be engaged last turn and then survive, if that makes sense. But that's the same condition for Milgram's Commander Strike. Right, 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 right. Which but that, I'm thinking that like, happens a lot, too. So <laughs> It happens more than you think, but like for 60 points, he's really great. And the thing with the dwarves is they're so versatile in terms of like, eh, I'll just move my six today and you can, you know, this turn and you can stay wherever you are, Derek, or whatever. You know, but like, once again, if you need that heavy hitter for 60 points, it's a huge bargain. It really is. And then Mogram just, Mogram, I mean, Derek's only got two defense with the hide and shadows is actually pretty legit like it's kind of like stealth armor a little bit except for special attacks and then um then mogram with tough once again that helps i mean both of those have i mean derak's survivability can be a little bit misleading because two defense and four life really isn't that great but then if you throw in the hide in darkness it ups it but like with mogram two defense and six life and tough you know i think that's it's really good. It really is. And then, um, you know, he's got four attack and his commander strike and the fact that he gives an initiative boost, too, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, plus three. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, like, he just has a little bit of everything. Derek's sneak attack, doesn't it work with any unit? Isn't it just if a unit that you control is adjacent? Yeah. Right, but why would you have anything besides dwarves? I'm just kidding. You, 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 you could have rats. You could have rats if this still works. No, 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 no. Cody, we played two different games, you and I. <laughs> you don't have rats and dwarves in the same army. I think ever, that might ever. be another one that I'm bringing to Gen Con. Ever. Ever. It's like it's like a it's like an unspoken rule. I think like I could see a guy in Colorado doing that, but really nobody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I don't want to go down the reverse the whip uh yeah, the reverse the whip rabbit hole, but for sure, we've bounced around ideas of running like one squad of dwarves and Derek and a squad of rats, stuff like that, in order to abuse sneak attack for a. Yeah, really, dude, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really sick, but that's a bit of a spoiler. So, y'all get to see that at hopefully next Gen Con if we can make it work. But um, No, no, you should never run rats with dwarves. That's like, I it's don't only know, one man. squad of each. It doesn't matter. It's You're sick. like. Uh, Fine, Fine, Tarn and one squad dwarves and Derek. Okay, all right. I, I can get that. Cool. <laughs> all right. So just for the sake of time, we'll move on from those two. Obviously, they're very good. Let's see. Who else do we have left? Oh, we have the classic. We've already discussed this on the first episode as well. 
Cayman Awash and Major Q10 both do pretty similar things. They have some differences, as we discussed. I'm on board with the idea that I think the 30 points that you save from not getting Q10 oftentimes lets you get something better for the rest of your army. Like, you shouldn't just be grabbing, like, Mark Kuisama with that 30 usually. At that point, you're better off with Q10, but oftentimes that 30 is helping you get something else that was important, and I think that's really valuable. But Q10's all, you know, Q10, large immunities, Solberg immunities, which are both very good, five defense very good um you lose the counter-strike which is situationally useful uh situationally broken actually i've lost i've lost before it came in soloing my stuff but anything else really on those two i mean we hit them a ton before they're both very powerful figures from a melee perspective cayman awa is just a lot scarier because of counter-strike yep i think q10's four shots of two is definitely so basically you're trading that with counter-strike I don't know. Q10's just so versatile. I really like him. I personally put him above Cayman, but I mean, both are really good. And Cayman can like shoot from afar as well. So they're just units that are just good like every single turn. There's basically not a turn where it's like, oh crap, I, you know, I can't, I'm not going to do anything with them or something like that, you know. And it's really hard to put them in a bad army. You know what I mean? Like they kind of came in and Q10 will go basically anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. After that, let's move on to another Vita range unit. This is probably my, no, definitely my favorite. Uh, this is Agent Skahen. Skahen is one of the coolest figures, top 20 coolest figures in the game, easily. So with Skahen, first of all, let me preface this by saying if you're taking Skahen, you should be taking Onashi. Skahen's not 120 points, she's 100, 130 points. You need to take Onashi. Double attack at seven range is pretty great with, you know, six moves. So she's got the Krav stats. Now, here's where people fall into traps. Remember, she only has three life. Stealth dodge is a trap. You don't want Skahen facing off against range. If you're facing off against range, she's going to whip. She's going to die. You're going to feel really bad because you just wasted 120 points. Instead, you just destroy melee. You dismantle them by just staying at max range the whole time, taking a couple shots per turn. She's brutal in the end game. She can be pretty brutal in the early game, too. Odonashi, the whole reason you take her is the cover fire. You just save Odonashi until you absolutely need her, and then you get out of the corner. So basically, melee's win condition against anything like that is that they eventually are able to are able to corner her and force her to stop running. Odonashi is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Once per game, I'm not cornered, and I get to leave. And that's insanely valuable. It's super... It It's like an extra... It saves her. It flat-up just saves her life every single game you have her, pretty much, other than against, like, range or whatever. But you shouldn't be taking Skahen without Odonashi. Don't do it. And I guess technically she works with some other boring units from Vidar. Who cares? She's, she's good on her own. So you just run, like, Skahan and Osanashi, and you just put that... Like, you don't build anything else around Skahan, usually? Nope. Nope, that's my end game. My end it, especially if people don't understand what's happening, or aren't aware of what's going to be happening, it can get ugly. My dad experienced that this summer a couple times. So, he against me in testing games, I kind of warned him, like, this is going to be bad, and then it was bad. <laughs> Do you ever run her with Raylan against range? Like, do you ever play her similarly to the Krav? No, because then I'd rather just have Krav. I've just, like, every time I've played her against range, she just whips once and then is just dead. 
Like, I don't know. I, I don't see her against range. I think it's a trap. Um, I, I think you can do it with Raylan, but I also don't really run her with Raylan. I don't know. If I'm taking Raylan, though, I'm better off with Krav again. So I, yeah. I, I think you can do it, though. I will say I think you can do it. Well, I think she's just outside of the Otanashi thing. Um, I always looked at her as just a not as good Krav, you know, put in into a hero form. So that's why I basically wouldn't see her very much, even though she's still a good figure. But uh, with the Otanashi thing. See, I, I haven't I haven't played that yet. I haven't played you doing that yet. So that's it, definitely something that I need to play. Yeah, it's and it's also it's a ton of fun. Like I I am not a big fan of range units, but man, Skyhen is one of those ones. Skyhen and Nailfimer are like the two. I don't know. I guess I don't like range units unless they're both busted and interesting. So like I don't like Q9 because I feel like he's busted but not interesting. But like I feel like if I play really well, I can bust Nilfheim, and if I play really well, I can bust Skahen. And that's what I enjoy. Which is a little weird, I guess, but Does she have three base attack? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Again, she's not going into like a full army of knights though, right? You're using her as cleanup against you know, when they're spread out and they're going to be at least partially spread out. And then she can really start just running and gunning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, I don't know if I've ever actually played with her, but she seems legit for the points. Yeah. Do you ever play her with Dune? No, the closest I've done was her with Nikita and Onashi, of course, but, and it was cool. Engagement strike walking around. It was a little gimmicky though. It was my main event army from like 2013. I ran Skahen, Nikita, Krav, Odonashi, and Raylan. But the problem was I knew going in that I had some bad matchups and I went three and two because I hit Torkolna and I hit Braxis. And I knew I instant lost those matchups. So yeah. I've always <laughs> I've always I've always wanted to play like chain fighters with Nikita's like the ice elemental and arcware and like set up some stupid like <laughs> engagement strike pod and just like you know out of all my games i just wanted to happen one time does that work if you use the wyvern to drop them oh man i have to read the wording on it exactly but it might oh man now have a new goal for gen con (laughs) (laughs) you know the wyvern's actually a real unit so the chain fighters are I was trying to look at I didn't see him at the A+. Plus. I think you guys missed that when you were making these rankings, but that's all right. We'll talk about that later. Oh, I did screw up and drop down Hatamato. I think it was because I had too many people that weren't in on the joke asking me why Hatamato wasn't in A+, plus all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so then I bet you I was like, okay, like, for the people who get it, it's good, but for, like, the new player who doesn't actually know they're looking at this and are genuinely like genuinely confused so i decided to drop him back down unfortunately yeah, i left great. it up for like two years so <laughs> it was great it yeah. was great all right so i think we're mostly done i think there's just a couple left ken you had a part of designing this figure elta hail uh not design but just yeah i mean not necessarily design more play testing but yeah she's great man I jokingly call her my girlfriend, but yeah, I, I think Alta Hale is great. I love all her abilities. I love her stat line. I think she's super thematic. Like Thunderstep is awesome. Thunder Ram is great. And then her, her raw stats are great. Like I think she's a, she's kind of like a mini dragon, so to speak. I think like yeah. she does some, some similar stuff as dragons do. 
granted she doesn't get the multiple attacks as often, but like she can either, she can hit real hard or, you know, she can also thunder ram. She's a great cleanup figure. Yeah, I think she's great, but I'm pretty biased, so. No, I agree. She's basically Nilfheim in human form. Her stats are almost identical, and she's very good. And I, I also, I think she's a blast to play. Did you have anything else, Ken, on that, or? No, nothing that, no. She's the only warden? No. Is the warden a warden? I think he's a Solberg. Species Solberg. Species. Is her species warden, or is her? Man, you think, like, after 15 years of playing this game, I'd have everything memorized. <laughs> yeah, how dare you not know Hill's species or class or whatever it's called? I know she's a warden. I don't know if the warden is a warden. Hill is a Goliath unique warden, pure warden fearless. Right, and she's a Goliath warden. What's the what's the warden? Yeah, he's a warden too. Soul warden, two. unique hero, warden tricky. Oh, I can use warden eight sixteen with Skyhand. Oh no, he's not Viator. Never mind. Oh man, that was gonna be your Gen Con army too. I saw it coming. Yeah. With some uh, with some uh, granite guardians. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know dude, I love the, I love the granites. Yeah. I do too, man. I do too. But yeah, I'll, when we get to them later, I'll tell you a story about Clarissa Miss and how he cried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on from there, looks like we just have I think two left. So making decent time. The first are going to be the Phantom Knights. They're just very good against, you know, 4th Mass and 10th Regiment and Stingers and all that cheese. 7 Defense is really good. The biggest problem with them is that they get destroyed by Bonding Melee and also Special Attackers. Yeah, 6 move Stealth Flying is pretty is pretty redonkulous. Yeah. They kind of remind me of Stingers. Like, they're just very splashable. They're pretty much always good. I think if you run, like, a lot of them, then you definitely are going to have trouble with Bond and Melee and with Special Attackers. But if you just have a few of them, they, you know, obviously still still struggle with it, but can do pretty well. Because hopefully the rest of your army is for that. And they also, like, single-handedly keep the Kravs in check. Same with a little bit with Airborne Elite as well. Like, I think the crowd are really, really good, but because the Phantom Knights exist, I have them a little bit lower. Well, and I think, like, so, like, yeah, melee bonding can beat them up pretty good, but really, I don't want to say they're counter, but, like, their survivability to that in some aspect is they can dictate the engagements because of their ridiculous stealth flying and moving, right? So, a lot of times, they're on height, right? Yep. Yes and no. I don't think you ever get height on them, but I think I don't know that they ever get height on you. So like with stiff smooth stealth flying though, like I can basically go you've got your front row or whatever, I can go to your back and pick off whatever dudes I want. Like, you know what I mean? So like so they mitigate that to an extent. Granted they're still gonna lose, but at least they have something. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I just I think if you're playing well against them though, I don't think they're actually attacking down, I guess is my point, like with height advantage, you know? I guess it's map dependent, but I, I guess thinking about, like, what maps we had this year and just in general. Assuming fair maps, I guess. Well, I think, like the Stingers, they just always are going to do something. Like, I don't think you're going to run into a matchup where the Phantom Knights completely can't do anything. Right. Cool. Sergeant Drake, Alexander, the Swarm of the Morrow version, that's, you know, Big Drake. Thorian Speed is real nice. And then Six Attack is real nice for dealing with the fourth mass's big weakness, which is Q9. 
I don't think you really see him outside of fourth mass builds. I've always liked him as a cleanup hero, but finding 170 points for cleanup just isn't really practical. He's got that pistol attack, too, or whatever, right? Yeah, against the non-Jandar figures. It's neat. It's cool. It's a nice ability. And he's got, like, pseudo-flying or something? Yeah, he's got the grapple arm, move four spaces up and down however many levels you want, basically. And he's got the Nilfheim stats. Yeah, 170 is a little pricey. Yeah. And the, the pistol attack's not multiple attacks, is it? Correct. It's just one yeah. attack. Yeah. But again, he's he's very important to those fourth mass builds in order to have an answer to Q9, so... Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Thorian speed is also really annoying to deal with. Yeah. And once again, we live in two different worlds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't matter in your world. No, it does not. Like I'm like Thorian, what? So. Yep. <laughs> All right. Moving on from Drake. I think this is the last one for real this time. I'm scanning the list, but basically it's the Mesodemon Warmongers. Now, I have them up here. Maybe they should be B+. Basically, I view Mesos, especially in 1-2 to two squads, as being one of the most efficient uses of your points because they don't give up board control as they take casualties, assuming you're not playing against auto-kills or special attacks. Otherwise, you can lose, quote-unquote, lose a Mezzo, but really all you're doing is losing an exoskeleton and not really care about it. You just maintain a consistent couple attacks per turn. Now, it's only two attacks per turn, which isn't great, but it's two attacks of four, assuming you're going up against commons, which most armories are built on commons. They're just a really nice cleanup force, or they're great in reverse whip meta, of course, as well. But, I mean, even William, maybe four years ago, I want to say, won General Wars running Phantom Knights, Mezzos, and Hydra. So he kind of had answers to everything, and... I know Mezzos were pretty great in that army, too. So I know William doesn't really like taking that many Mezzos anymore, either. I think he had four squads back then. Your biggest trap with Mezzos is if you run, like, four or five, six squads, then you have some auto-lose matchups. So if you hit Braxis, if you hit Hounds, if you hit Grimnak, Torcolma, Black Wormlings, Fire Elementals, there are just so many good-to-great armies that you just auto-lose to because of auto-kills. So I... Grimnak himself will just solo your army because Chomp is stupid. So just be careful about that, but they're still a very efficient unit. And one thing I think strategy-wise with these guys is a lot of times people like to put them up on height and then just keep them there and remove exoskeletons until, you know, until the sun goes down or whatever. But, like, at some point, if somebody get four attacks on a mezzo and the first one kills the mezzo and they've got no other shots... Sometimes you just take the mezzo off the board and deny them those extra attacks because then you're denying them the exoskeletons too, right? So I think like that's another strategy that people got to think about. Like sometimes it's okay to pull the mezzo instead of burning through all those exoskeletons, you know, to save it for later. I mean, it depends on the matchup if there's a special attack and some other stuff. But like I think that's something that people got to play into account. And, and really, you know, our conversation earlier, I think before we start recording about like how you guys think there's like a – diminishing return on mezzos is super interesting to me i never thought about it because i don't know when i run into mezzos i've never been super concerned because five attacks of whatever melee bond is going to get through exoskeletons eventually and then two attacks of four backs not that big of a deal but like that, that's interesting to me about the diminishing returns and i think i'll have to think about that a little bit more i've never thought about that so that so you're making me think michael i appreciate that well, and actually, William was the first one of us to do it back in, I think, like, 2014. He ran one squad of Mezzos, so just as filler in an army. And I think that was the first time when he said, whoa, like, it's actually a real filler, where it's actually, you know, it can do real work in the endgame. 
if someone were to peruse Gen Con results threads of the last five years and look at my my name and actually I don't know I've only ran them once I think but if you look at Nathan's and Williams and Matthew's armies you'll see quite a few one to two squads of mezzos ran that's because we all really like them and they're super efficient I don't want to give William any credit though so I'll give it to you okay thanks (laughs) cool and then the very last one I'm sorry I forgot about this one is Marcus Um, we hit him with the Romans the plus one move for the Romans is great the plus one attack is nice as well just something to note is that he also works with 10th Regiment to make them 6 move and 4 attack with weight than fire. 5 attack on height with weight than fire is insane if you can set it up. But even just 4 attack is great. And then he works with Airborne to make them 4 attack too sometimes in Roman builds specifically. So And Sacred Band. Yeah, and Kirkland brand Romans. <laughs> so like the fact that like that's just like an incidental, you yeah. know what I mean? And, like, I have been on the receiving end of Marcus with 10th Regiment, and, like, I had to start going to therapy after that. Like, I remember Treetown, I don't know, it was a year after I won it, and uh, I was playing Eternal Thanos in the championship, and I had Knights, and he had Marcus Airborne in 10th Regiment, and, like, it was so ugly. Um, The good news was he had the attack glyph on his side, and I had the glyph of Brandar on my side, so it helped out quite a bit. But um, (laughs) it was so ugly. It was just like a shooting gallery, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I have nightmares about Marcus and 10th Regiment from back in the day. It's just tearing me apart. But yeah, the fact that he's just like incidental, like, oh yeah, Drake gets an extra attack or, you know, plus the Sacred Band for those of you who use them. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. and even the fourth mass, because back in the day before, you know, back like it was just wave one and wave two, it'd be Romans, fourth mass and Marcus, right? Well, and the other thing with 10th real quick is just the fact that adding along with the attack is the move six move six range is insane yes it is so you finally kill a couple of those tents and then guess what the ones from the back are running right back up it's so like oh as a melee player like it's just nightmare stuff man yep did we talk about marku nirak or me i don't remember those three i think we covered me Berksa and Iraq with the bonding squads mainly saying how busted me Berksa is bonding with those and how Nirak creates defensive pods with the death chasers but you're right we forgot about Marku so Marku he is the cheapest figure per life in the game and it's not even close you're paying three and a third points per life versus the next cheapest which is 10 just let that sink in it's insane and he can and- heal it back and he can heal it back, so he's a great Wanox soak. He's got four attack and life drain. I mean, this guy... Seven move. Seven move flying. Seven move and flying. I know he has the eternal hatred, but it's not enough of a negative to where he's still not an insanely powerful unit. Back in the day, I was at a tournament in Kansas City, and Mark had Mark drove up from Texas, Reichian, and I saw... He had, he's playing a game against, I have no idea who this dude was, but his Marku killed Charos, Keldon, a squad of Microcorp. Like, full life. <laughs> Charos. I'm not joking. His Marku came back and did that. That's nuts. Yeah, he's ridiculous. Until yeah. you roll a 17 on a lava map. And the cool thing about Marku, and quick rules tip to anybody who doesn't know, if your opponent has or had Marku in their army at any point during the game, you don't have to roll for Eternal Hatred. 
Pro tip, it's pretty great when they have Marku and they're not using him yet because they don't need to use him yet. And then you get to have your Marku and not have to roll. This specific scenario won me a game at Gen Con two years ago against David, Video Sage. At the end game, it was seven stingers Marku against my Marku. My Marku just soloed it because it was just, oh, eat a stinger heal, eat a stinger heal. And they couldn't get enough damage through because I was on height because seven moved flying pretty good. And then went and beat up his Marku. <laughs> I never was, thought about that. Yeah, it's a so really it's, it's, it's a the nice Negaxa mind shackle rule, right? It's the same concept. Exactly, and yeah. so even if their Marku had previously died, you still don't have to roll for it. So I need to talk everybody into running Hawthorne. <laughs> You're right. If everybody runs Hawthorne, nobody gets stabbed in the All back. Right. Cody, you got to run Hawthorne next year. So Hawthorne stingers. Wars and rats is what I have to bring. Yeah, sounds great. You <laughs> <laughs> can also use Marku. I just played Nathan. He did this. When you use Ornak and you do the uh, right. first order marker, you can use Marku and, and bypass Eternal Hatred. It's a great way to grab early glyph. Yeah. Not even that. You just, throughout the game, just once around, whack something for four dice with a figure you don't care. Like, I've played a lot of Warnak pods, and Marku is... My first two inclusions are Marku, me, Berksa. Your opponent just looks at him, right? You fly him up, you whack something for four dice if you don't feel like grabbing a glyph with him. You do it the next round. They're just looking at this figure, they're like, am I really going to waste all this time trying to kill this stupid 20-point figure? If the answer is yes, then cool, you're not attacking literally anything else of my army for a little while. If the answer is no, okay, that's another free attack of four I'll be getting. Or five oftentimes, because height. So he's really dumb in those Ornak pods for 20 points. <laughs> I think Ornak with Marku is significantly better than Ornak without Marku. I don't think it's even close. That probably wraps us up for the main topic tonight. So Ken, why don't you lead us with our next segment? So uh, once again, we're going to be talking about Gen Con again. As a general rule at every podcast, last podcast, we talked about kind of what Gen Con was. And, and then today, super briefly, just kind of want to talk about like what to expect at Gen Con. And uh, more as what to expect at Gen Con as a HeroScape player. I was chatting with Cody and Michael earlier about like, if I just talk about what to expect from Gen Con, it's just too big. So we're going to kind of concentrate more on HeroScape. So HeroScape starts Thursday morning. And that's when the dealer hall opens up. And then we run events. Basically, we have events going uh, every morning and then every afternoon, and then we do sometimes we do a, a couple night events. The thing to think from a perspective as like a first-time Gen Con attendee, and I think everybody you talk to as a general rule will reinforce this, but like the HeroScape players, the HeroScape community is like the best community there is in terms of just friendliness, good sports, relaxed atmosphere. They're always willing to lend figures, lend order markers, lend dice. We've proxied Vinok Warlord as a Samu more times than I'd like to account. I've had people basically write their, write, they forgot their Asamu card, whatever, so they're using a note card right now. Okay, what, what's the stats again? Or somebody's using their phone as an order marker, or as a, um, as a card and putting their order markers on it. Like, we're just super relaxed atmosphere. We really want you guys to have fun. You know, that's the whole reason that we do this, uh, is to get together and have fun. HeroScape's just a, it's just a great, great game, and, we want to make it as good experience for you as possible. We have lots of different type of events. Some people like the multiple, ar- I call it multiple army events where you get to choose from like different armies. We have, you know, straight kill them all events or whatever you want to call it. 
we try to do a pretty good job of having different options at every play time. Say like on a Thursday morning, if we have like an 11 to 4 slot, we try to have different options. I guess, well, Thursday morning we've been running the Flex Tournament, and that's been going really well. At some point, we'll talk. I'll talk more about the events, you know, a, a different podcast. But we just try really hard to like give our, you know, give our community a lot of different options at different times because we because we really respect them and believe that they deserve that. The last two years we've been in Lucas Oil, and that's the stadium. And really, like when we first moved there, I was kind of weary about how it would work out. And in all honesty, like I think I like it quite a bit. The bathrooms are way cleaner, so that's great. There's food trucks right outside, so that's great. The biggest negative, though, is it's a good 10 to 15-minute walk from the main con. I know, Cody, you haven't had a chance to check out Lucas yet, right? No, I haven't. What was it, the last two years, you said? Yeah, yeah the last two. And I'm making some assumptions about this year because, really, we don't control where Gen Con puts us. They'll put us where they want to put us. So, I mean, we may be in there this year. I mean, if history shows anything, we probably will be. I don't know. Michael, you've were you you've been there the last couple of years. What was your thought process about Lucas? It's only, like, maybe a five-minute walk from the main con. But it's, like, it's going to be, if you're staying at one of those downtown hotels, it's going to be, like, a 15-minute walk, right? It's got its upsides and downsides. The bathroom is a huge thing. Way cleaner. Also, it's just really cool being out on the field. And, you know, you're in this huge area. It's way less crowded it's way less noisy but if you're somebody who enjoys playing other games the biggest negative you're gonna find is that you can't bounce back and forth between the two like between let's say you're going to play x-wing and HeroScape, right in between rounds of x-wing you're not gonna have time to come over to lucas to check out what's going on HeroScape and vice versa so that's gonna be kind of your one negative with the lucas oil situation now, that doesn't really affect me because that doesn't really matter to me, but if that was something that would really bother you, I guess Lucas would be a negative. Otherwise, I think it's all positives. And I'm one of those guys that does play quite a bit of different games at Gen Con, so it does bug me a little bit because I like to always kind of swing by and check on how everybody's doing and making sure everybody's having a good time. So, like, when I first started going to Gen Con in 09, like, all I did, I played HeroScape Dust Till Dawn. You know what I mean? That's all I played was HeroScape, and I think, like, the more you go... Some people still just play HeroScape, right? I mean, Cody, do you play other stuff when you're at Gen Con, or do you just stick to HeroScape? Not anymore. I played, like, a little bit of Summoner Wars when that was going on. But I like gaming a lot, but I kind of just like to focus on HeroScape. And, Michael, I know you're pretty much primarily HeroScape. Yeah, so the problem is, I mean, it seems like every year my either my dad or I do, or both, do some other game. And every year, it's just... I'm not driving out to play games so much as to hang out with the people playing the games, and I'm just not thrilled with a lot of the other gaming communities that I run into at Gen Con. So we played Game of Thrones last year, and first round I hit a real jerk, and it just kind of really soured the experience. And I actually dropped after the next round and decided, okay, we have these flex tournaments. We're just going to go play flex instead of playing Thrones because we don't want to play it anymore. The people aren't good. Uh, so a lot of the people are great, especially a lot of the Midwesterners, but, you know, at a place like Gen Con, people come from all over, and people get too competitive, and they get, you know, they're just, they no longer care at all about having fun, they no longer care about having any sort of human interaction, or like, you know, there's not, with that first round guy, there was not even like a, you know, how are you doing, he literally just sat down and started shuffling in his deck without looking at me. And so then I just kind of look at him. I try to instigate some, you know, conversation. It just didn't go anywhere. And it was just super weird. It was like, man, so like, why, why am I playing this game? 
those are the types of things. Like, I don't care about losing in games. Sure, like, I'd rather win, I guess. But what upsets me more than anything is if at the end of the game, I'm saying to myself, man, I wish I did literally anything else with the last hour of my life than that. And that's how it Hmm. generally feels with a lot of these other games. Now, I know, Ken, you don't really do tournaments, right, for a lot of these other games other than, like, Dragon Dice. But a lot of times you're, like, demoing or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, like, me and Jeter have been doing Lord of the Rings for less, I don't know, seems like forever. I think Garrett's been in on that a little bit lately, too. And then, oh, we've been doing the Pathfinder card game tournament, the four of us. We always try to do an RPG together. But, yeah, I guess I played an X-Wing back in the day before it got stupid. I don't know. I, I just feel like the more you go to Gen Con, like, the more, you like, things evolve. Because, like, I feel like the first time somebody goes to Gen Con, there's just so much to take in. Or maybe they're just playing HeroScape. Like, I know, like, Jeff, when he went with me the first time... He didn't really sign up for any events, but then, like, this last time he kind of made, like, a concentrated effort to sign up for stuff. Because I feel like if you don't know what Gen Con is, like, it's kind of hard to explain it without experiencing it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It literally is so much. There's just so much going on. And then as far as HeroScape goes, like, you know, we have a group of GMs because, like, you know, me, Bo, and Jeter, and then Michael, we just can't. We just can't GM every every tournament or everything because we also want to be able to go do the stuff we want to go do. And some of that is HeroScape, some of that's other stuff. So we have a group of GMs that we've you know, that we used for years. And once again, for rules questions or whatever, they're there to answer questions. But generally, as a community, we do a pretty good job of kind of policing ourselves, I think. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we don't really have to call over a GM very often to solve a rule dispute because we're pretty relaxed. And then, like, as the overall tournament director, I try to make sure that, like, you know, everybody's having a good time and, like, there is some sort of, like, I think, like, two years ago, I can't remember who it was exactly. Even if I did, I probably wouldn't say it. Not in, like, a disrespectful way, but, like, we had, like, a winner after three rounds, and some guy came up to one of our GMs and was like, well, I thought this was a... You know, he wanted to play a fourth round because he thought that's what the ticket was for for four rounds. Like, in all honesty, like, he could have been right. We just had a winner after three rounds, you know, and just stuff like that. Maybe we should have just declared the winner after three rounds and played a fourth round because that's what he wanted to play. You know, just stuff like that that I tried to and try and resolve if I have to. But like, and like I said, I'm not saying that guy was wrong by any means because he could have been right. But with the fact is we just had a winner after three rounds, because sometimes it happens if you have eight players or less. Generally our events, we try to run 16 player events. We have a bunch of different games going on or one big 48 player event. We also have learned to plays, which people love. And then uh, there's always people walking by and like, Oh, I didn't know people still played this game. So it's just a really good experience. And I really do encourage you if you're thinking about gen con because i know it can be a little bit uh it's not cheap it really isn't cheap but you know if you've been thinking about it for a while and here's the deal like if you know somebody on the site like nine times out of ten if they've got room they'll probably split a hotel room with you they really will or carpool or airbnb or whatever you guys use nowadays whatever you millennials do but um i just really encourage you guys to come check it out the heroescape community is is amazing Next podcast, we'll talk more about the different types of events we've had in the past and maybe a couple of teasers about what to expect for this year. And then back to my teaser from last week or last podcast I talked about, Jeter's still working on it. So once we get the go ahead for the 100%, I'll give some more info on that teaser. But we're still at about 90% right now to make sure it's going to happen. What to expect from Gen Con? I mean, kind of a general overall arching statement. I know I don't know, guys, you've both been going for a long time. Any other thoughts about that? Specifically about HeroScape. Come play. Come have fun. You'll meet a bunch of cool people. I like to think we're pretty welcoming to new faces. It was great having, you know, we had 
the Michigan crew come out, you know, a couple of guys from that crew came out, Brian and Derek, which, and they're both really cool. So, and I know they're bringing, but they came, they had a good time. They're coming out with a whole bunch of people too, along with, I believe the Dayton Hero Escapers as well. I also know a couple of guys came out from Maryland that hadn't come before. So it was just, it was really cool to see, you know, some new faces come out this year. And we're hoping that they come back next year. And in the case of, you know, like in the case of Brian and Derek, they're bringing out a whole bunch of other people. So it's really worth the effort if you can make it out. Cody, anything else? Yeah, you just get to play with people that you either see on the site or have talked to on the site. You also will get to play against some of the best people. I mean, you learn so much just from playing people who are really good. Not only will you play against people who are really, really good and competitive, but you'll also play against people who are really friendly and some of the best I guess, social experience type of people around HeroScape who, who know the game really well and know how to have a lot of fun with it. And not everybody at Gen Con's one of those guys that live in their mom's basement. You know, Gen Con, you get like the nerdy vibe. I don't feel like everybody at Gen Con's like that. Maybe a couple people from Colorado, but... <laughs> yeah, not definitely not in the HeroScape tournaments. Right, you may want to stay away from the Magic the Gathering area, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, HeroScape is a lot of just, like, regular old dudes playing. Why well, you gotta old, say old? Regular and old, in the case of Ken, but... Not that old. You're like, 60 or something. Eh, something like that. Anyways, moving on to our final segment of the night, we have our listener question segment. This one is brought to us by Dadscaper. And, pretty simple question, how are local turbots different from Gen Con? Well, there's a lot of differences... I think my favorite one is the fact that you get to play so many. If, if you're doing more than one HeroScape event, which you probably will, let's say you're doing what I do and what a lot of people do, which is, you know, they'll play seven events in the weekend. Your performance in any one event doesn't really matter. You can scrub out in four by four and then take down, you know, whatever, heat of the battle or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like, cool, I scrubbed out in 4 by 4 it doesn't matter, you know, and it just lets you keep a really positive outlook and just gives you a lot of chances to win, which is great. There's three tournaments going on at every time slot, so you're going to be facing good competition, but you're never going to be really that upset from any one tournament performance. Like, I was a bit upset overall. Not upset, that's not correct word. I guess disappointed disappointed yeah about my gen con performance this year but i still like I, I was above 500 over the weekend and i had a great showing in day one of main event uh lost to some dude from colorado in round one a day two in a heartbreaker of a loss but i mean those colorado people man i tell you what yeah there's something about it uh <laughs> but yeah, i still had a great time and I guess some of the bigger differences, though, beyond that would be you're going to notice that the player skill is going to be higher at Gen Con than at your local tournament. The average player is going to be better. The top players are going to more than likely be better, which is really, really cool, really exciting. You get to meet and hang out with a lot of those people and talk about whatever. Like if you go up to any of them and start talking about what, like other than Ken, because Ken doesn't really play the game anymore. Talk to <laughs> any, you know, anybody else, just go up to them. You know, if you see like Nathan, for example, go up to Nathan, 
well, actually, no, he'll put you to sleep. Don't talk to Nathan. That's actually true. <laughs> it's happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> but the point is, you're going to be playing against great players, and you're also going to be playing against great armies. That's another big difference, is that the average army at Gen Con is better than the average army at your local tournament, and probably by a pretty large margin. You're not going to see in 4x4 a bunch of B-plus armies. You're going to see 4th Mass. You're going to see 10th Regiment. You're going to see Heavy's Knights. Like It's cheese, but it's cheese for a reason. But then you're also going to get to experience, as Ken mentioned, a whole bunch of events, a whole bunch of different formats that put twists on these formulas that really change it up and really help keep it fresh. Beyond that, you're going to find that the map pool, hopefully, and the glyph pool definitely are just very fine-tuned. The glyph pool, we've been using the same one for years, actually might be changing up just a bit for this next year, but that's for another time. That's that's still in committee mode. Yeah, exactly. But the glyphs we've been using are all great. Wanok, for example, is just a great glyph, move, etc. You're not going to find like range plus four here. You're not going to find defense plus two, stuff like that. And then the map pool, it's not stuck only in tradition. I thought Nathan and I really, we really broke out of just using the traditional maps, but it's not just your any old fare. So like a lot of tournaments still will use whatever BOV map just because it has a BOV seal of approval. That's not really good enough for Gen Con. It has to really promote interesting dynamic gameplay while also being very balanced. And the problem is there's just not a whole lot of those maps, which is why we use a lot of repeat maps. We've checked out a lot of projects. We've checked out a lot of threads. Nathan dug, in order to help build the last map pool, Nathan dug through 50 pages of people's threads on Heroescapers in the map subforum and just went through them one by one. And then we spent, I want to say we spent somewhere between eight and 10 hours on the phone together discussing maps so we spend a ton of time and the whole point of this is we don't want you to be on a map where you feel like you lose the game because of the map so you're going to find at gen con that hopefully the map pool is a more fine-tuned experience to really help foster competitive and interesting play any other big differences you guys think there are between gen con and your local tournaments I don't think you're going to come across games where players completely played a major rule wrong or something like that. I think locally that might happen. It depends on the local scene, though. Like, if there's a local scene that's been going on for a long time and most of the people are, like, veteran players, then that's fine. But Do you guys live pretty close to each other East Coast-wise? I've never really been to the East or the Northeast, so I can't really picture in my head how close you guys live to each other. Yeah, we're, like, what, maybe an hour hour and a half hour 45 away yeah so your local scene is pretty similar we don't really have a local scene anymore that's kind of what i was yeah so i think like so i think the question is a little interesting because the local scene here is basically Treetown, which is four hours from me back in the day we you know we had nebraska tournaments we had kansas city tournaments we had des moines tournaments we had Stuff, but I think I'm, I'm assuming Ben is asking about like current, and I guess that's hard to judge because local tournaments, in all honesty, are few and far between, really. I know there's like. Well, it know, depends on the region, though. So, like, Ben has, they run a lot of tournaments in the Maryland region. I know in see, Ohio, uh, the Dayton group. How close is Maryland to you? Like, see, I just don't understand Northeast. So Maryland shouldn't be as bad of a drive as it is, except that every road down to Maryland is terrible. All the highways in the Northeast are just absolute garbage once you hit New York City. So it's it's a haul down to Maryland. Okay. I see that the Ohio guys got some, and not the old school Ohio guys, kind of a new school 
Like, I'm right. not talking about, like... It's not the Columbus group. Yeah, yeah. They, they've kind of got something going, which I think is super cool. Yep. Utah's got something fairly consistent. You know, I call you guys the East Coast, but I guess the East Coast is way bigger than I'm giving it credit for. Texas used to have one, but I think Texas is few and far between anymore. And then, really, for me, just Tree Town is really that's all that's local, and local is four hours away. Part of that's on me. Like, I could definitely run something local, but really... In all honesty, running Gen Con once a year is enough for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's hard for me to say how does Gen Con compare to a local tournament when really I'm not sure if that exists for me much anymore. Um, as far as Treetown, Treetown's super relaxed. Codeman does a great job every year, but he's been using, like, the same map since, like, before you guys were born. Um, <laughs> and, like, his glyph pool is, like, here's a bunch of Brandar glyphs and here's a bunch of attack glyphs. Hopefully the attack glyph lands on your side. Like, I ran into the summoning glyph this year, and I was like, oh, what does this do again? So that's way different. Uh, the maps are way different. And even, like, and like you said, like, we have a lot of guys that come down, but, like, they're not super competitive. Some of them just haven't been playing the game as long. They're still great sports, right? Like, the camaraderie and the sportsmanship is still real similar. But, yeah, like, at Gen Con, it's, it's more competitive. The maps are more specific is a better way to say it. And so are the glyphs. So we used to have a pretty big New England scene for a good while run by uh, Anakara and NYYS, which is New York Yankees suck. I know Ali as a local player. He's mm. quite good. And I know Kinseth was quite good. It seems like the New England scene, just most of the people either don't play anymore or I think Ali and Kinseth definitely plays online. But I don't know if it's, like, the people who are running it just don't do it at all anymore. So I know that there's, like, a new scene that I haven't been out to, and that's definitely my fault. Like, I know Chris Perkins, I think, is, yeah. is doing it. Yeah. And I, I haven't been to a local tournament in, in a good amount of time, so I can't. I'm, I'm only kind of reminiscing on when I used to go, which was, I don't know when the last one I went to, maybe, like, 2013 or 14. I don't know. It's been quite some time. Yeah, I think he just ran one, was it last week? Saturday. Or the week? Okay. Yeah, I I mean, I'm out in Chicago right now, so I like, wasn't yeah. making it out. But So, like, right. for me, a lot of it has been the fact that I live partly in Chicago, partly back home in Connecticut, so it's not super easy for me to get out to things. And then also, like, gaming tastes have changed. Like, I love HeroScape, but I don't really play it outside of Gen Con, so it's a commitment to try to drive, like, two to three hours to each way to a local tournament to play HeroScape, you know, it's just not always what uh, my dad and I want to do. And also, I don't get many days off when I'm back home and working. So up until a couple years ago, I was going pretty much every year down to Islandscape down on Long Island. They, they do a great job down there. Sir Dendrick, who just placed top four at Gen Con main event, AJ, local player to that scene as well. Local tournaments are a great time, though. It's just hard to make it out for yeah. myself and my dad at this point. Yeah, I just wish we had more in the Midwest within driving distance. And like I said, part of that is on me. I could run one, but like I said, Gen Con's enough for me right now. But yeah, because I, I, I would definitely try to go to more if, if there was more to choose from. Because I, I remember back in the day, dude, I was going to Kansas City or Des Moines. like, Or I even went up to Austin a couple of times. With, you know what, though? I think Michael Jormy does run a couple up north in Minnesota, like Austacon or like the Con of the North. So maybe I have to take that back. But that, I mean, that's still a six, six and a half hour drive. But in the Midwest, that's pretty easy because it's just boring. That's also hard, like you said, with work and then, you know, having six kids. It's kind of hard. And then telling my wife, but hey, I'm going to be gone all day. In fact, I might spend the night, have a nice day with the six kids. 
sometimes that doesn't go over super well. So I'm not sure if I answered this question or if I just talked in circles. Basically, if you've gone to a local tournament, if you've enjoyed it, come to Gen Con. If you haven't gone to a local tournament, but you think you'd enjoy Gen Con, come to Gen Con. So what I hear you saying is everybody should go to Gen Con this year. Exactly. We should get record attendance. That would be amazing. So sounds like a pretty good place to wrap this up. So thank you all for listening once again. Starting with the last episode, I actually started doing editing, which is a ton of work, but I think helped improve the quality. Please, as always, give us your thoughts, your feedback opinions on basically whatever what you know everything we've said tell cody why he's wrong about braxis and stingers and, and stingers right and then yeah please also leave your questions in our listener questions thread we have another couple all set to go but i also want so like for example ben's question today worked perfectly in tandem with ken's gen con topic and the next couple questions i have are going to be better in a couple episodes so please i'm trying to make it so that i can match up the listener questions to where they make sense with all their content so yeah please leave us your questions in there thanks for listening happy skating